You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. Hello, everybody. This is Nathan Hunt, the uh, chairman of uh, the Moscow Board of Directors of Serba, Canada, Eurasia, Russia Business Association. Interviewing today, Alison Leclerc, the ambassador of Canada in the Russian Federation and Uzbekistan and Armenia, the Republic of Armenia. We are uh, grateful to have you here with us today, Ambassador Leclerc. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Nathan, for having me. It's really a pleasure to join you today and uh, and have this opportunity to reach out to the Canadian business community uh, interested in these three markets that I work in. We're going to start off this morning with a few personal questions, if you don't mind. Of course. Did you always know you'd be a diplomat? I know you grew up in a small suburb of Toronto. What was it like growing from a small town and then uh, end up living in faraway places like Brazil, Sweden, Switzerland, Russia. Uh, how did you get into that? How did you get involved in this in the first place? Well, you know, I don't have a clear answer to that. I mean, my clearest memory of wanting to do it was while in university. Uh, I started university without having a clear sense of what I wanted to do um, and took a number of different courses, one of which was political science and international relations, and I loved it. And once you're in that line of study, you hear a lot about the foreign service exam. So it, it was a surprise to me when I looked back, and I don't even know when it was, to my high school yearbook. Um, the year I graduated high school, our, our yearbook had this uh, gimmick uh, where you needed, uh, the graduates needed to note uh, future ambition, probable fate. And I graduated high school not too long after the Iran hostage crisis, when, of course, in which Canada, of course, uh, played a role in helping American diplomats. So to find in my high school yearbook, I had noted my future ambition as ambassador and probable fate as hostage. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) my future ambition has come true, very privileged in that sense, and I dearly hope that my uh, that probable fate will not. So indeed, yeah. So it was not. Uh, I don't remember being a very clear ambition at that time, but very glad I ended up where I am. Uh, to go from a small town, and I and I do have to clarify, it was a small town. It may now be considered a suburb, but at that time it was a town, and Toronto was the big city far away. I have to say, it was really overwhelming. Uh, You know, I had before I joined the Department of then External Affairs, I had never possessed a passport. I grew up at a time when to go to the United States, Canadians didn't need passports. Uh, Your birth certificate was ample if they asked you for any identification at all. So the first passport I ever possessed was a diplomatic passport. Didn't come from an international family at all. So I think I found it overwhelming, but, uh, but I've loved it. Very stimulating. Love the chance to live in different communities, to be uh, to think about the world in different ways. Uh, It is just a a wonderful set of experiences. 
You started in 1987. How has the diplomatic landscape changed since then? What has become different? What has stayed the same? Well, of course, in 1987, the world was still very much defined by uh, the Cold War, um, by the Great East-West uh, divide. Uh, it was only two years later that that that, that process, uh, the ending of the Cold War, uh, the start of a more less predictable, more chaotic world. So I would say I uh, my childhood, young adulthood was really defined by the Cold War, the threat of nuclear annihilation, mutually assured destruction, all of those concepts. So that was certainly one mm -hmm. thing that uh, that framed my world at the beginning of my career uh, that very, very quickly changed. Another characteristic that I would uh, I would say has changed dramatically is symmetry. You know, at uh, when mm -hmm. I when I joined the department, and I would say probably through to the mid '90s, although academics would be able to speak to it more authoritatively, two leaders meeting or a group of leaders meeting uh, was not a routine part of uh, international diplomacy. Of course, it is now. It's very much part of the fabric. It wasn't when I joined. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the role of diplomatic missions and of diplomats indeed was very different. Lastly, I would say the role or not role, but participation of women in diplomacy has changed mm -hmm. dramatically. Uh, the year that I joined, there were 20 political officers uh, that joined in my class. I was one of two women and one had resigned uh, by the end of, I think, our second year in the department. So it was a very, very male-dominated world, and of course, that that there are, there is still work to do, um, but it has changed a great deal. And I'm very proud to head a mission that is at least 50 percent. I haven't done a count, but we are a very diverse group, and uh, women are extremely well represented. Well, that's a pleasant change. I'm glad to hear that things are improving in that regard. Tell me, have you had any adventures? What do you remember from Brazil, from Sweden, uh, who knows, from, from uh, Geneva, from, from Russia? What, what, uh, what would you consider your greatest adventures, your most interesting adventures? Well, hmm, that's a big question. Um, lots of great memories. Um, from Brazil, I was fortunate in my first year to have uh, to work under a very adventurous ambassador. Uh, for those who, who may well know the name, uh, John Bell, extremely well known in trade circles. He was my ambassador uh, when I went to Brazil, and I joined him on uh, a number of very interesting trips. Uh, there was one that I remember very clearly where we visited a, a very remote community that had had only recently been discovered, um, a community that had started a uh, hundred or more years before that as a community of escaped slaves. And they had basically remained in hiding and developed uh, their own society uh, in this very remote circumstances, never knowing you know, when slavery ended in Brazil. I'm not sure the origins of their rediscovery, um, but, uh, but I joined uh, my ambassador and uh, a number of local officials, media. Um, I think we were, we, we, the Canadian embassy was providing some development support, I think to the, in a, in a health program uh, for this community. So that, uh, that was a fascinating experience. I have to maybe can recount uh, uh, my my history with 
limited, but you know, I am, I'm ambassador in Russia now. Um, I'm not a specialist in, in Russia, but I did have some exposure to Russia early in my career, uh, most memorably coming to Moscow in 1993. And then again in 1995. Uh, so uh, 1993, very few cars on the road, most of them military, very quiet, and then coming back in 1995, and of course, it had Moscow had really just exploded at that time, uh, and it was a very different, uh, different environment. I remember you telling me about prime ministerial visits, which are always a, a, a tax, uh, certainly a, a difficult uh, uh, test for an ambassador when you were in Sweden. What, what happened then? Well, when I was in Sweden, you know, I, I went to Sweden. Uh, part of my rationale in choosing Sweden was a country that I thought would be interesting, but quiet. Uh, you know, Canada and Sweden as two countries, very like-minded. There had not been a prime ministerial visit there in a long time. I arrived in Sweden uh, pregnant with my third. So I had two small children and I was pregnant with my third. As a mother of a young family, was not really looking for the kind of adrenaline rush you get with uh, symmetry and high-level visits. As it turned out, the time I was there, and I should have known better, in fact, should have known this one, uh, Sweden hosted its first EU presidency, uh, and that meant it culminated in a visit of the prime minister, uh, two ministers, uh, multiple parliamentarians. Uh, so that was very exciting, but very challenging. And then uh, Sweden at that time hosted, uh, some of your listeners may recall, a process called the Progressive Governance Process. They hosted that or had originally planned to host it on September 12, 2001. Uh, so that didn't happen, but I did watch 9-11 unfold surrounded by our then Prime Minister's tour office uh, because he was expected to arrive the following day. Some did end up taking place about, I think, six months later. But that wasn't the last time that we saw the Prime Minister in Sweden because uh, there was a stop of the Team Canada plane on its way to the to Russia in I guess 2002, full of well, you remember those very large delegations. I think you were involved in that one, were you not, Nathan? I, I was just starting out with Serba when they first came to town with Jean Chrétien and all the premiers, but one. I don't remember one was missing, but every other premier was accompanying him on the yeah. trip. So they, they made an unscheduled stop in Stockholm for about eight hours because of a health incident by one of the members of the delegation. So in the end, uh, in my four years in Sweden, I had either planned or unplanned uh, visits, four visits by the prime minister. Good Lord. <laughs> more than you expected. <laughs> Far more than I expected, yeah. Yeah. What uh, what prominent Russians? Let's turn to Russia. Have you had a chance to meet the president? Have you met any other prominent Russians? Well, uh, I've not had as many as I would have liked, of course. I arrived here in mid-January of last year, and uh, that means, as I, as I say, I had five normal weeks before COVID hit and everything locked down and everything became so much more difficult. But in that time, um, I was fortunate enough to present my credentials to President Putin, um, and mm -hmm. uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, of course, uh, was there. I think it was the last group 
of a sort of classic credential ceremony here in Moscow before COVID hit. So, uh, so I was very glad to have that opportunity. Uh, following that, I had the great honor uh, to host to many, if not most Canadians, extremely well-known uh, Russian um, Mr. Chichak, uh, who came to meet me here at our new official residence, where I'm living now, uh, in a room that we've now uh, named after him, as, uh, as, as really symbolic of uh, an iconic time in, in relations between our two countries. So uh, that was a huge privilege. Um, but the sad reality at this stage of, uh, well, not just here in Russia, everywhere, is that person-to-person -person contacts have become very rare indeed, but hopefully not for too much longer. The pandemic must have had a significant effect. Has it changed your plans? Uh, has it uh, impacted uh, opportunities for business, culture, exchange, diplomatic relations? How has it changed what you had planned to do? Well, it's yes, it's changed everything. And I would say, I would have to say that for the most part, it has changed things in an unfortunate way in that, uh, when I came here last year, I had hoped to have uh, met many more people. I had hoped to have introduced myself uh, to many more Russians and to many more Russian regions. I was, in fact, the day before the WHO uh, declared this a global pandemic, I was due to fly to uh, Chukotka to attend an Indigenous film festival in uh, in Anadir. was so looking forward to that. There were Canadian filmmakers who, in fact, did end up making it. But to really explore these opportunities to, uh, to foster people-to-people -people contacts in all of these areas, in business, in culture, in academia, in science, and of course, so much in uh, under the under the theme of Arctic, that uh, area where both Canada and Russia Russia really understand in a very deep way the need for uh, cooperation to address our common challenges. So I had hoped to really get out there in a, in a way that I've not been able to. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I would say uh, one of the unexpected. Uh, outcomes is that our trade program, in comparison to other mission programs, has not uh, diminished. It has remained as busy as it was uh, before the pandemic, uh, and in some ways, because of the the forced the technological forcer of moving um, digital, moving remote, moving virtual, means that in some ways our reach has been extended. You know, it's always a challenge in a territory as large as the one that we cover, Russia alone, but then when you add Armenia and Uzbekistan. So in sectors like uh, education, um, in IT, of course, uh, in and of itself, uh, but in other areas, the move to the virtual platform rather than uh, in-person conferences uh, has meant that we've been we have been able to reach a wider audience. Uh, interest in the markets that we cover has continued unabated. So that is, I think, a very uh, very reassuring. Now I'm going to backtrack a bit, and I bet during the editing process that they'll put this question farther back. But I know the the listeners, our listeners, will be interested to hear what is Mr. Tretiak like. He is just such a lovely, lovely gentleman, a great storyteller, just very 
uh, warm and generous in his manner and very wide ranging in his interests. So uh, we talked a lot about hockey, of course, um, but we talked a lot about other things. And he told me wonderful stories about how uh, he met his wife, about how uh, and all the one his wonderful experiences in uh, in Canada uh, through the years. So it just uh, his warmth and generosity of spirit and his enthusiasm for all the all for 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 hockey as a way to bring people together to connect people to foster relationships is uh, is 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 truly inspiring uh worth noting uh while we're talking about it that next year is the 50th anniversary of that famous 1972 series uh we're already thinking about how to mark that occasion uh so stay tuned it's it's perhaps an improper question, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you remember the 1972 series? Did you get out of school for it? <laughs> well, we didn't get out of school, but we got into the gym. Yeah, no, I do remember it. Um, you know, I, I and I have to say, I don't come from a hockey family. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't one of those famous that famous imagery of hockey night in Canada and the family gathering around the TV. That was that was not my family, although my brothers uh, played. But when the 72 series was on, uh, we were gathered together in the gymnasium to uh, to watch it. You could buy snacks. And to this day, when I see Starburst candies, I don't know if you know those. They're, they're chewy, very um, almost sour candies. And those are my I, favorite. I love Starburst. Okay. Well, those to me, those are those are those are my hockey candies because those were okay. the uh, the favorite snack to to buy and uh, and eat in uh, in the gymnasium while we were watching the uh, the hockey game. Well, I think fifty years on, Starbust is still doing pretty well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you find uh, similar and different between Canadians and Russians? And I'll ask the same about Canadians and Armenians. Uh, Canadians and Uzbeks. There are three countries you represent here, and let's talk a little about the others as well. Okay. Well, uh, I, you know, I think Russians and Canadians, it's a bit of a tourism to say that, you know, we identify as Northern people. And I think that uh, we would... Uh, many people have, have have different experiences and different understandings of what that means, but um, I, I do think that for both Canada, Canadians and Russians, our experience of uh, a cold and sometimes hostile environment that you need to protect yourself against um, it does create a sense of uh, kinship, perhaps. So I, I would say that that is one similarity. One. It's a similarity, but it's a difference. You know, Canadians have this reputation for being very friendly. And I think Russians have an, uh, uh, a reputation for being friendly, but it's a very different kind of friendliness. Canadians are very uh, publicly friendly, whereas Russians, if in, in, a, in, a, in passing them on the street, um, you know, in the public space, you would never guess or you would rarely guess that Russians are friendly. But... As soon as you are in a private environment, the the warmth and the generosity of of Russians is uh, remarkable. So it is not apparent that that is a similarity, but I think it is. Very interesting. And what can you say about uh, the Uzbek people? I know you've had limited opportunity because travel uh, hasn't been possible, but uh, you have had some connection. 
Yeah, I've had some connection. Um, I would say I actually have more connection in the job I was doing before I came to Russia when I was based in Ottawa, but responsible for this part of the world and had a wonderful five days in Tashkent on a consultation. Unfortunately, not to leave Tashkent to some of the other remarkable places to visit in uh, in Uzbekistan. My my main reflection on Uzbekistan from that experience was what a energetic and hopeful place it was. You know, it's a place that's in the in the midst of this tremendous transition um, and uh, there was there was so much energy to it and and so much hope for a better future for building a a better future for all Uzbeks. Also it's beautiful there. So gorgeous. And I can't wait to go back. With Armenia, uh, you know, much smaller place. And uh, I, I would say one of the things that, of course, strikes anybody about Armenia when you go there is the pride they have in their history, although they have many terrible events in their history. Um, and that in so many ways, well, not just in their history, of course, but, and that, that is really very present in their national character, but also very present is their pride in their, um, you know, their culture, their food, their wine, their, uh, historic sites, their monuments, uh, so much pride in their, in their cultural legacy and heritage. And, uh, and again, I have not had the opportunity I do hope to have to discover more of Armenia. Um, I have had the good fortune to go there a few times now. Uh, and in fact, I'm about to leave again uh, tomorrow morning and to participate in the commemoration ceremony of the genocide on Saturday. Yeah, it's a, that's a ceremony that is, of course, very somber, but it's also very unifying and uh, looking forward to be there, being there with Armenians at that time. It's funny because my closest friends outside of Russia are Armenians and Uzbeks. I have very close friendships oh. with, uh, with several Uzbek families and several Armenian families. Mm. Uh, and I can tell you that I hope to be able to show you the wonders of Samarkand some, someday because I it's uh, stunning, stunning. Many people don't realize that um, 1,001 Arabian Nights took place in Samarkand, took place in Uzbekistan. Mm. The, the stories of uh, uh, Aladdin and the carpet and Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. In any case, you talked a little about your supportive business. Uh, obviously, it's been difficult over the last uh, uh, 12 to 18 months. Have you been able to support business? What has the trade section been able to do in these difficult times? Well, the trade section has been able to do a remarkable amount, um, even though they were evacuated uh, throughout the, uh, uh, for at least, I think, five, six months, um, but were able to remotely support, to respond to expressions of interest um, in uh, the Russian market, to, uh, uh, to support uh, proposed or planned investments in Armenia and Uzbekistan uh, to do advocacy with governments where needed to participate in, in platforms to project opportunities um, in areas like uh, education, uh, mining, agriculture. It has not been possible to meet as many people as I would like, um, but certainly I've had the pleasure of meeting you more than once, Nathan, which has been great, um, <laughs> of hosting you here at our new official residence, uh, of meeting members of Serba in uh, events that you very 
generously organized. Um, virtual events as well, uh, participated in a, um, a meeting with the Russian Deputy Minister of the Economy uh, a few months ago uh, to talk about uh, commercial relations between Canada and, and Russia. Nothing will, will ever replace in-person connections. Um, I think that we have discovered over the last year that there is a lot that you can do virtually. And I, I hope that we'll, we'll keep that for the future because I do think it does expand our reach. Uh, but I know I and uh, we are all looking forward to the day when we can come together more frequently in person. Ambassador Claire, I want to touch on your experience in the Arctic. You were Canada's senior Arctic official, and you have said that cooperation in the Arctic is a necessity, not a luxury. That, that quote sticks with me. Mm -hmm. uh, can you expand on that? What do you mean by that? Uh, with pleasure. Well, to start with, it's a matter of scale. Uh, together, Canada and Russia are stewards of 75% of the Arctic. It's a part of the world that is under extraordinary pressure um, that looking forward is going to uh, change significantly uh, in our lifetimes and certainly throughout the lifetimes of our children. To support the communities that live in the Arctic, to help them adapt, to uh, reinforce their resilience, to make the most of the opportunity while uh, mitigating or minimizing the risk, both for the North itself, but also the impact of what's happening in the North on the rest of the world is where uh, Canada and Russia really do need to work together to share uh, the science, to share uh, the policy best practices, to build connections, uh, well, I shouldn't say build, to reinforce connections um, between and among communities um, are all essential pieces of, of addressing those common challenges. So what are specific, some specific examples of that? The most obvious one I think that people would uh, understand most intrinsically is the, the thawing permafrost. So more so in Russia than in, in Canada, because Russia has more infrastructure built on the permafrost. Um, but it, it, it doesn't matter whether there's a lot or a little, if it's your infrastructure and it's destabilizing because of melt, then it matters to your life. So how do we rehabilitate roads? How do we protect buildings? How do we counter the impacts of, uh, of thawing permafrost so that uh, um, our communities can still function is it's kind of an existential issue, isn't it? So there's really good work being done in both Canada and in, uh, in Russia, and it's a priority area where we can, we can learn from one another. Uh, and we are doing that. We are bringing uh, bringing uh, academics, experts together, um, and I think that that will happen more and more over the uh, the Russian chairmanship of the Arctic Council that is beginning uh, next month. Um, another uh, social area, uh, just to just to flag um, health and education how you deliver high quality health services, how you deliver high quality education services while protecting while empowering communities to uh, live their traditional lifestyles, um, to have access, safe, secure access to food that can be locally produced, 
Um, these are these are all critical social issues and social economic issues uh, where we have much in common. In working together, we can deliver better outcomes for our communities. How is the Canadian Arctic different from the Russian Arctic? I know that the, the Canada. Uh, had an Arctic strategy in 2019. I think Russia had a new strategy in 2020. How are how are the strategies and the realities different? Between well, the two I think the the strategies, in fact, uh, bear out the similarities more than the differences. Although I agree that there are differences, the similarities in both strategies is uh, taking people as the center of of the strategy and recognizing that our policy responses have to. Uh, have to have people at their center, um, you know, whether it is food security, uh, economic activity, or protection of the environment, these are all important dimensions of supporting people, particularly Indigenous people living in our North. And there is a lot of um, uh, consistency across both strategies. Where are they different? Well, uh, economically, very different. Uh, the latest number that I heard, and I, I can't give you a sort of academic reference for it, but uh, a Russian official said that 20% of Russia's GDP comes from its north. That is, mm -hmm. and of course, we, we, we know that Russia planning forward um, is looking to commercialize its northern sea route. So it really does see its north as an engine for economic growth. It's very clear in the strategy to say that that is its sustainable economic development, but it is economic development on a scale that is really not part of um, the Canadian uh, landscape. We certainly do understand the importance and are fostering the importance of sustainable economic development. But our North compared to Russia's North uh, as a much smaller percentage of our national economic output. And I've not seen anything that suggests it's going to be anything different for the foreseeable future. And I think Russia has a larger percentage of its population in the North as well. Is that right? Indeed. Yeah. I, you know, our, our population in the North is something like not even half a 1% of our population. It is, there's fast growing communities uh, in our North and uh, it is a part of the world that is very dynamic, culturally, economically, uh, socially. So in our, you know, our strategy is, is very much concerned with, with fostering that. You know, take for example, I think another one that um, that your listeners would relate to very immediately is the whole issue of uh, marine transport. So, uh, you know, in Russian plans, the the work that's being done now to commercialize the northern sea route, uh, planning assumption is that that will be a, uh, a navigable on a more predictable level. Uh, in the not too distant future, and there is active planning for that. The reality in Canada is very different. Uh, you do hear a lot of talk about the Northwest Passages, but just climactically, it is very different. Climate change is, uh, um, at least as predictions go, um, and those aren't always reliable, is that it makes navigation uh, less predictable, not more because of sea ice movements. So on that very, very big transportation issue, it is very different. I'll go ahead and ask a kind of a provocative question. Uh, many viewers believe that there's potential for conflict in the Arctic. Uh, and yet Russia and Canada have a similar situation as regards uh, uh, resource delineation in the Arctic. What can you, how can you comment on that? 
Well, I would say our perspective, and we share it with Russia, is that uh, the Arctic is indeed a zone of peace and of cooperation. Um, it is a part of the world that is, in our view, and again, I think that this is very consistent with what Russia would say, uh, very well governed. Um, there are uh, treaty arrangements with UNCLOSE, uh, Forum for Cooperation, that is the Arctic Council, um, with uh, treaty negotiations on issues like science, on oil spill, most recently on the high seas fishery. It is not to say that there aren't disagreements, but uh, we would say those disagreements are well managed and there are processes to manage those disagreements. The one that I think you're referencing is the continental shelf. I am not a legal expert, and I think it's very important that people understand that I am not a legal expert, but my understanding is that uh, the process now is that each uh, country with a claim to the continental shelf has uh, done science, evidence-based work that has now been submitted to an international commission. And that will be evaluated. Uh, and once that evaluation is complete, and that will take years, there will then be a negotiation. So if there is an, an overlap, an overlap of claims is not the same thing as conflict, I would say. There may be competing claims, but there is a process to manage, uh, to manage that. Uh, and I think that that is all consistent with our view that the Arctic is, in fact, um, a well-governed space that, um, uh, that, that manages competition. Uh, now, there are, I know, growing concerns. I think we all read them about um, militarization, about rising security threats. Um, I think that's becoming part of the, uh, the discourse. And, you know, what I can say is certainly Canada and uh, what I read and hear from others is uh, a commitment to the Arctic as a zone of peace and cooperation. That's great to hear. Great to hear, Ambassador. A couple questions to close it out. What would you say made you a leader? Hmm. Uh, what made me a leader? I, I think I would say experience. I think I would say experience. I think that I think that in 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 working in my field, there are years in working, at least my own personal experience, where I would look at my leaders and and understand that I couldn't fill that space. Um, but gradually, for me, through experience, through learning from those leaders, uh, want to have more responsibility. Uh, want to be the one that is able to to uh, to guide others based on, I guess, an appetite for responsibility. That's probably not a very good answer, Nathan. I would need to think more about that. But I, you know, all I can say is gradually, I wanted to be at the table. I didn't want to be behind, whispering into the ear of the person behind the table. Except, of course, when it's the minister. Then I'm always happy to be behind. <laughs> there we go. Well, we're, we're very happy that you're at the table, Allison. I can tell you that. What are your priorities in life, and what does the future hold? Well, my immediate future, I, I hope, will, um, will hold the opportunity to do what I came here to do. I, I don't feel that I've had that yet. I, I think that my experience this year has been, it's certainly been challenging, um, but not what I expected. You know, trying to lead a team through uh, this pandemic uh, 
keep everybody safe uh, and well uh, and and represent my cat my country as best I can. Um, but I do want to have the chance to get out there, to get to Anadir, to get to Murmansk, to to meet uh, uh, regional leaders, uh, national leaders, uh, to advocate for uh, my country, to build partnerships in all three countries of my accreditation. So I really hope that we will, the pandemic will be behind us for lots of reasons, but, but very importantly for me, so I can do what I came here to do. And that is to strengthen partnerships between uh, uh, Canadians, Russians, Uzbeks, and Armenians to our mutual benefit. Well, we would all appreciate that opportunity. I know we in Serba have had our hands tied too, to a much greater extent than we would like. Uh, but we do what we can. Indeed. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. Mm -hmm. uh, Ambassador Leclerc, let me say thank you, thank you, thank you for a very warm and informative interview. My guest today has been Ambassador Plenipotentiary of Canada in the Russian Federation, the Republic of Uzbekistan, and the Republic of Armenia, uh, the Honorable Alison Leclerc. Thank you again for joining us, and please join us for future podcasts. Thank you so much, Nathan. Be happy to. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.